Good morning. There's two things that are sure in life, death and taxes. Uh, I hope you're very aware of taxes because they were due this past Tuesday. It's interesting, taxes, they're, they're reoccurring, right? We, we, we even get used to them because every time we pay a bill or check out, there's, there's taxes and should be a constant reminder. Death, the other sure thing, is quite different. It only happens once. I, I, I fear we, we lose track of the importance and recognition of death. This morning, as we look to this text in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're, we're taking a long, hard, raw look at death. Death is difficult. That's why it's hard for us to actually talk about it. Death is the painful end of life. Uh, our, our preacher in Ecclesiastes, he continues to, to lead us through the, the hard truths, the hard realities, to, to hopefully lead us to wisdom. We, we've considered how empty this life is, all is vanity. We've considered how fleeting this life is, all is vanity. The reality we're, we're fo- focusing on even more now is that death comes to us all. And, and then we're forgotten. This is difficult. But the, the hope is that we would actually consider death so that we might gain wisdom to live. The, the, the hope here this morning is that as we meditate upon the preacher and his leading us to consider death, is that we might gain wisdom to live. There's four different points here from the text. We all die. Living is better, dot, 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 barely. Death is coming. Wisdom is still better. We all die. Uh, This is from verses 1 to 3. Uh, we, we've gone through different sections. We, we, we are transitioning here. There, there, there's still that important theme. We don't know everything we want to know. We're, we're still under the sun. Uh, our, our preacher keeps going back and forth to just what he can observe, what he can know, what we, we experience under the sun, and, and, and also helping us look up to see the, the God who is worthy of all fear and reverence and worship. Here, there's, a, there's a, an emphasis on the way he wants to consider there's an intense way in which he's thinking about this and hoping that he would lead us to think about it. He's, with his heart, he's examining. This is one of those important realities we must face. So, so, so he, he's using a, a, an elevated language. It's not just what he observed, what, he, what he's thought about. It's, it's what he's examined with his own heart. It's a weighty matter. All this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. It's how God is sovereign. God's hand represents a sovereignty, a power, a goodness, a control. How all things are in his hand. The next phrase here. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. There's a declaration that God 
knows everything. God is sovereign over everything. Everything is under his control. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a powerful God recognized, understood from the preacher. Everything is under his control. This is not a hard determinism like our atheist friends have, where we're just a clump of cells and you can do nothing but what your clump of cells tells you to do. We're a closed system of hard determinism. No, this is, this is a sovereign God who's letting us freely sin however we want to sin, but, but calling us back to himself to know him, the God of life. Here, that, that last part of verse 1, is it love or hate? Man doesn't know what, what is going to happen. When, when, when we face God, when we face that judge, we do not know, he says. We've already looked in the past uh, from Ecclesiastes. He's, he's numbered our days. He's given us our days. The days of adversity, the days of prosperity. God is the one who has it all in his hands. I want to wrestle here for a little bit with what he says man doesn't know. Is God going to receive him in love or is God going to receive him with wrath? I, I want to pause here because this is an important reality. This is an important truth for Christians. He says that we can't know and I, I want to be very clear. God actually does tell us in the New Testament. God tells us actually throughout the Old Testament. Here, as he examines uh, kind of an under-the-sun perception, how will we ever know how God is going to receive us? Well, Scripture is very clear. Outside of Ecclesiastes, you, you can know if God is going to receive you with love. The way you know that God will receive you with love is that you have received his Son as your Savior by faith. There, there's a, there's a, a certainty that we can have. And it should be a growing certainty as we grow up in faith. It's terrifying to think you couldn't know how God's going to receive you. This would be like the child who comes home to an angry alcoholic father who never knows what kind of mood he might be in. God is not like that. God is perfectly just. He will punish every sin with absolute justice. God is merciful to give us Salvation. We can know how God would receive us, and we can know because He sent His Son so that we might have eternal life. We we sent His Son so we would know Him. So I want to actually offer you assurance, believer. You can know God's love. I don't want your assurance to just be in a prayer you once prayed a long time ago. I hope you did make that prayer, and I pray you continue in that faith. I, I, I don't want your assurance to just be in a past experience from, from, from days ago. No, it, your, your knowledge, your, your faith, your assurance is in that you trust today in God's grace to save you. It, it, it's a today faith. It's, it's not a past faith. I, I pray it, it is a past faith, but it, it must also be a today do you currently trust Jesus to save you? Do you currently know more and more the depth of sin and how he loved us while we were sinners? Of course, go back and remember how he's been faithful to you. Go back and remember the promises you've received and made to God. But it's a today faith, an act of faith. 
There's an assurance granted in Jesus Christ. God loves you. He doesn't love you because you're lovely. He loves you while you're a sinner. He loves you in order to make you lovely. He loves you in order to, to, to recreate. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit assures our own spirit that we belong to God and we're adopted. That the Father receives us in, in prayer. Hebrews continues to tell us, enter boldly with confidence because Jesus Christ, who died for your sins once for all, is risen and ascended to the right hand so that you can, with certainty, with courage, with boldness, go into the presence of God. Oh, believer, you can know God loves you. It's important here that we avoid confusion that it's a guessing game. Here for the Preacher of Ecclesiastes, there's a great warning. What, what, what is God going to do? And we really got to focus here on verse 2 and 3. Notice the word same driving this section. It is the same for all, since the same event happens. Drop down. The same event happens to all. There, there, there's an importance here, it's universal. This one thing is going to happen to everybody, and it's, it's death. Everyone must die. There, there, there's a, a significance here that it's the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, the, the one who sacrifices, the one who does not sacrifice. Everyone will die. This is an important matter for us all to consider. Death is a, a force outside of us, is the way he describes it. It's something that comes from outside. And it's, it's, it's coming crashing down. Notice there in verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done to the Son that the same event happens to, to all. He calls it an evil. We, we've seen this word before. It, it can be translated as a wrong, an unhappiness. Death is difficult to talk about because it's confusing and painful. We've, we've grieved the loss of many loved ones among our church. We've, we've, we've grieved with members who have lost their, their, their loved ones. We, we realize other loved ones will pass. We reflect upon our own ultimate end. There's a significance here. Something we will all face, something we must have real conversations about is, is death. It's reasonable that it's, it feels wrong, that it, it's described as an evil, that it's difficult. It's because death is not the way it's supposed to be. There, there's a conflict. It's the way it absolutely is. Everyone dies. But we have to recognize it's not the way it's supposed to be. The God of life created us to live. He formed us and breathed his own life into us with his own power. He designed us to, to live by knowing him and being known by him. His purpose is that we would live with him, for him, toward him, with one another. That's what we can say. It's, it's wrong. It's unhappy. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. God gave man everything we ever could need and everything we should have wanted. 
The, 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 the one thing man is told not to do is to eat of the one tree. And the, the whole purpose of that tree, I think, is to make sure we don't ever pretend we're autonomous. We're, we're fully dependent upon the God who has given us everything. And he declared very clearly, if you break this one command, rejecting everything good I've given you, you're going to die. The original design is that we would live. It's wrong. It's evil. It's unhappy because it's what we brought into this creation. Notice also in verse 3, it's, it's not just the death that's coming from outside. He, he turns and looks inside. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. It's not just that dead is waiting for us all. It's, we have a fleeting life, but now there's a, a meaningless because we're, we have a madness. Our, our, our hearts are full of, of self-deception. We will all die. There's one solution. A theologian of the past calls this God's great dilemma. As we think about the reality of death, we really have to, 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 to weigh what God did originally. He created us all in his image. He, he created us all wonderful. He created us all with a, a capacity to glorify him. He created us all good. He created us all beautiful. With his power, we were supposed to, we were designed to reflect his glory. And God then also gave us a word. If we sin, we will die. This is the dilemma. God can't break his word. He's true and faithful. He doesn't lie. He, he keeps his word. Because we sin, death must come. And the dilemma is, that, is the creation a failure then? Does this mean that the glorious good creation of our great and powerful God is a failure to bring him the glory he intended to bring? Quick question is, what is God to do? God spoke another word. I will come and I'll reverse this curse. We know from the New Testament even more clearly, I will send my son. He will become like you. He will die for you. He will take away the sting of death, the judgment that should come from our sin. He will come and, and, and take away the, the judgment. He will take your sin by putting upon himself. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why when we meditate on the cross, we rejoice. Death is defeated in the death of Christ. He is risen. All right, Easter wasn't too long ago, folks. God made us upright, and we all went after our many schemes. And God said, I will come. I will be the solution to the dilemma we've caused. And the beauty of that isn't just that he takes away the sting of death. It isn't that he takes away just the, the, the wrath. He actually brings us back to the beauty and the glory and the goodness he originally designed us to be. You go to Ephesians 5, and Christ is, is the, the bridegroom, and he's, he's beautifying the bride. He's renewing us back to be the image bearer we were meant to be, the, the one who brings God glory by transforming us. What, what an amazing God. 
He forgives us of our sin. He dies in our place. He rises to give us new life. He restores us to the, 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 the wonderful high place we rejected. Sin is ugly. Death should lead to despair. Praise be to God in Christ Jesus who forgives us, renews us, and restores us. Death is coming to us all. Our next section, living is better, that's 4 to 10. Living is better, dot, 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 barely. If you've been with us through Ecclesiastes, we can't get too excited. Verse 4, but he who is joined with the living has hope. Wow, hope. Right, you're getting excited here. Maybe the preacher's going to turn a little optimistic. You know, not to get your hopes up. There, there, there's a living hope. His, his, his reasoning, we've got to do kind of some cross-cultural, uh, crossing a bridge here. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. All right, so, so here, in the preacher's world, dogs are still animals, not people. <laughs> if, if you have adopted a dog into your family, that's, 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 that's you, that's fine. But we got to understand, like, the preacher here, dogs are just bigger rodents. They're not loved, they're, they're despised, and they're, they're, they're gross, and, and they're, there's just nothing good about a dog. He, he's not going to put a dog in his Christmas card. But a lion, the majestic, powerful lion, the, the living dog, just say it like that, the living dog is better than a dead lion. We, we got to get that contrast. The whole point is living is better than dead, even though the, the, the hierarchy of being lion to, to, to dog is so significant. Verse 5, why? The living have hope. The, to, to live is better than to die. Why? Verse 5, because the living know they're going to die. Again, good, hard, raw look. The living are aware they're going to die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. The memory of them is forgotten. We see here that the living still have a hope because they can, they can still make a choice to, to live. Verse 6, their, their love and their hate and their envy has already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. As Pat mentioned, the eternal life, resurrection, is, 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 is more vague in the Old Testament than the New Testament, but it's, it's very, very vague here in Ecclesiastes. Death is coming. It's an end. Notice here in verse 7, he, he turns a prescription and we see a command. It's not a command, it's a command. This time it's, it's what it is. Verse 7, there's three commands. Go, eat, drink. We, we've seen this before. Over and over again, we've gotten this as a nothing better than to enjoy the fruit of the labor, to enjoy the, the food that you've labored for, to, to, to drink with, with, with a merry heart. 
For God has already proved what you do. There's a, a sense here that this is pleasing to God. It's acceptable. Uh, verse 8 points to a, a desire to do this with purity. The garments are white. There's no oil lacking on your head. There's an there's a abundance of blessing. And then notice verse 9. We've had a diagnosis. Death is coming to us all. You have some hope right now. You're not yet dead. Here are the commandments. Go, eat, and drink. Now, two things to enjoy. Enjoy the life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy the one God has joined together with you in covenant. Now, now he, he, he has to remind us of how fleeting this is all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion of life and your toilet which you toil under the sun. The point here that you enjoy the life. You enjoy the, the days of your life. They're precious. They're, they're, they're fleeting, but they're precious. And you especially seek to do so with the, with the wife whom you love, with the, the spouse that you've been joined together with. It means you participate in life together. You have a, a friendship where you desire the good for another. Verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do... Do it with your might. We have verses like this in the New Testament. Whatever you're going to do, do it for the glory of God. There's a way in which we have to remember work is good. Work is commanded in Genesis 2. We didn't mess anything up until Genesis 3. Work is meant to be good. It's meant to be something we commit ourselves to. We shouldn't seek to avoid it. But, but notice here he, his rationale. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever work you have, do it with all your might. Why? There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you're going. Work today because you can't work when you die. Now, I, I, as I, I wrestle with that, it, it, I, think, I think our preacher would have a difficult time with our culture in that our, our whole system is designed that you would live so that you might work and to the point where you would get to not work anymore in retirement. And he would ask, why are you living to die? W work is something good that you can do now. There, there's no such thing as retirement in Scripture. There, there is such thing as changing stages of life as you grow from a child to a young adult to a, a mature adult to a, uh, an OG, an older generation, which you can meet with them afterwards at lunch. But re our retired folks are about to retire. Please keep working. We, the younger generation, need your labor with us. Praise God, you, you, you've labored to, to have more free time. Use that free time to keep working in the kingdom. Use that free time to keep working to build up the, the, the next generation. Life is short. Work with all your might. I want us to see here the, these commands. 
God has approved what you do. God has given you your days. God has given you work. Enjoy the life of your spouse. Enjoy your your days. Uh, Give yourself over to work. Don't half-heartedly go through life. It's too short. You're going to die. A key word we've, we've kept coming back to in Ecclesiastes is stewardship. Taking what God has given us and, and using it for His glory and seeking to enjoy it according to His way. Our work is meant to be a, a stewardship. God gives us good work to do. We're, we're meant to enjoy it. So, so students, the work you have before you is whatever's left on the syllabus to finish the semester well. Don't, don't coast because you've got a, a few more weeks left. No, keep working with all your might. Okay, you've already got the grade you want. Okay, work for the glory of God. Not the teacher, not a grade. Work for the glory of God. Employees, you're, you're not just getting a paycheck. You're not just providing a, a service to society. Work is a way for you to worship See, your job is a good gift that you can use to glorify Him with in the way you approach it. If you're self-employed or you're a boss, recognize you are going to one day give an account and a job review by God Himself for how you stewarded what He's given to you. Husbands, wives, those engaged to be married, there's a way to enjoy your spouse that, 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 that's appropriate that would bring you joy, but God has designed you to, to enjoy your spouse as a, as a stewardship. There's a, there's a way we can misappropriate God's gifts in that we love them just in the, for the sake of themselves. We, 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 we love them not as a way of recognizing we're loving God and worshiping Him, as a, a stewarding, but, but, but seeking to, to love your, your spouse as an end in itself. And that ends up being something suffocating for your spouse. Something unsatisfying for you because God did not, compl- did not design you to be completed by another person. He designed you to only find rest in Him. We, we will only find the true, full delight in our spouse where we're seeking to do it according to God's ways for His glory. Let me say that another way. If you have a difficult time delighting in your spouse, it probably isn't his or her fault. You should probably find out what it is that you are not doing in God's plan or according to God's will. God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else will be given to you. If your spouse is always uh, unsatisfying, is it because you have wrong expectations? Is it because you're not doing your responsibility? Is it, is it because you're trying to love them outside of the way God has designed it? We call this ordering our loves. This is what Augustine calls uh, wisdom. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then every other love must fall underneath how we love God, why we love God, the way we love God. And then we will have wisdom and ordered life. That's an abstract big picture ideal. We're going to try to land it down a little bit more practical. How do you delight in your spouse? How do you enjoy this life with your spouse? I'm going to try to focus on two things here. Two sacred spaces. Two arenas. 
to enjoy your spouse. The dining room and the bedroom. Both of these require attention and intention, affection and repetition. The, the dining room is where you set the tone of your home, where you speak with one another, you share your life with one another, you, you, you come around with one another and, and share a meal. You, you, you set the tone of what affection looks like for, for you and your spouse and your children and, and, and all the other guests you get to bring into your home. It, it was fantastic. Another uh, a guest last night at our table who got to participate fully in our family because uh, she was eating at our table with our family and she got to enjoy the serious conversations and the crazy kids that jump all over the place. It, 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 it's meant to be a, a, an important, sacred time where you're, you're committed to seeing each other face to face and talking with another. Well, the bedroom is very different. No one else allowed. It's private. It's intimate. Kids shouldn't be sleeping in the bedroom. Kids need their own room. You need to get a secure lock. Pets should not be in your bedroom. You can pretend the animal's part of your family. They still don't belong in the bedroom. The TV, get it out. Remove distraction. Cell phones, don't ever think about bringing them in. Don't be a doofus sitting there playing a silly game or watching a silly video next to your wife God has given you. Why waste that vanity of time? Why pursue something so worthless when you could be participating in the religious activity of enjoying the wife? God's given you and you love. Hebrews 13, we're given a command. Do not defile the marriage bed. I fear too often it's defiled by neglect. Sex is a covenant uniting activity given to us by God. To to, to renew our love, to to express our love, to to be loved. Look, you're going to die. She's going to die. Based upon the commercials on TV, the equipment eventually might even start working. Seize the day. Enjoy the bedroom. Enjoy your marriage. Prioritize the bedroom with intent and repetition. If you're not married, stay at the dining table. Bedroom's off limits until you say I do and somebody declares you married. Stay at the dining table. This is where you get to learn how to express love and affection with self-control. That's God's good order. You should be pursuing your significant other. Your, I don't know what you're calling it these days. I, told, I was told not to use the words boyfriend, girlfriend, but here we are. Whoever that special person is in your life, pursue them with an Intentionality and affection. Young men, make sure you're pursuing with an intention and affection. Young ladies, make sure you're being you're welcoming their attention and affection. Life's too short to wonder why I'm not being pursued the way I should want to be pursued. Make sure your 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 expectations are biblical. Clear. There are too many lonely Christians in cold marriages. A half-hearted pursuit now is not going to be fixed with marriage. 
Make sure you're pursuing with intentionality. The third point, death is coming. We had a relieve that there was some hope for the living. We had some clear commands and expectations and, and, and instruction. And now we've got to come back again and make sure we understand death is coming. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to, to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. If we go back to Ecclesiastes 3, there's a way in which this, the, the time's marching and there's, there, we have no control. Here, there, there's a, the, the goal isn't to say the, the race is never won by the swift. We know that it oftentimes is. It's your ability doesn't ultimately make the final decision. Why? Because you, you have no idea what your time is. You, you could be like a fish that's taken up in a net. Bird caught in a snare. It, it, it comes upon you suddenly. Again, we're, we're talking about death here. There, there's a helplessness in this life. We're, we're supposed to feel that helplessness. We have no idea when death is coming. We have no idea when the tragedy might strike. So we should seek to live. There's no convenient time to die. We, we, we see him belaboring this point. Death is scary. Death is sudden. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. As we think about this second challenge of death coming no matter what, I want to consider two challenges on how we should redeem the time from two different authors. First, J.C. Ryle in his book for young men, he warns young men not to think, well, I'm going to pursue my fleshly desires today and, well, I'll, I'll change my ways when I grow up. But he says it's foolish. Today, you are becoming who you will be, and your desires are being trained today. Do not put off training your appetites for what God has ordained as good and right. Redeem the time by training yourself now to love God and all the things that he says is lovely. The other comes from Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He has this meditation at the end that, that, that's always just found, it challenged me. He points out, when Christ comes back, when we go to heaven, sin is no longer present. We long for that day because we, we hate how sin affects our worship and our ability to know God and enjoy Him and make Him known. But he, he points out, you know, that this short life is the only time you have to worship God by saying no to sin. This, these short days, these few years you have walking on this earth is the only window, the only opportunity you have to worship God by, by resisting sin, by denying yourself, by, by, by putting off sin and putting on Christ. When we get to heaven, we, we long for that day where sin is removed. We don't have to have that fight anymore. But, but this is the only window of time you have to, to worship God that way. Don't waste it. Death is coming. The last section. Wisdom is still better. Notice he sees something else and it's an example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to him. 
Verse 14, there was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. So we have a setting, there's a small little city, and, and, and we, whatever reason, this doesn't seem to account for any, with any Old Testament story, I don't know if it's just a parable or a historically happened, we're, 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 we're going to gain something from it regardless. A king comes against a small little city with great siege works. A new character is introduced, verse 15. But there was found in that city a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. And if we stop, don't, don't keep reading. If, if this story were true, if there was a, a, a poor, wise man who saved an entire city from a great king who was going to conquer the whole city or, or enslave it or kill everybody, if his wisdom actually saved the day, we'd name a day after him. We'd have a parade, right? Yet, no one remembered that poor man. That's the conclusion. That's the story. That, that's the example of wisdom. We have to remember that being forgotten is, is, is a word associated with death. Right? We've had righteous and wisdom, wickedness and foolishness, death, being forgotten. Well, we had it just a few, few sentences ago. Verse 5, the memory of them is forgotten. That's, that's death. Here he, he's pointing out that this, this wise man, it's better to be wise and to be helpful with your wisdom than to be remembered. He, he was wise and he used his wisdom not for his own personal gain, but for the benefit of the city. It's better to be forgotten, dead, than foolish and remembered for the wrong reasons. As I wrestled with this, I recalled my ninth grade shop class, the glory days. Our instructor was Walter Cooley. He had a big beard, so we called him Wooly Cooley. I, I, I was not a good kid. Uh, th th this was a rough year for me in Riverside High School in Greer, South Carolina. I, I was always in trouble. I remember one day, Mr. Cooley was addressing the students, and he said, you know, it's a shame because, you know, all you know, teachers' attention is always on the, the excelling students. They're the ones that get my attention. And then I got to pay attention to all the troublemakers, and he just looks at me. And it was like his beard just pointed. <laughs> it, it, it terrifies me that I would be remembered for the foolishness. It'd be better to be wise and forgotten. It's better to be wise and rewarded in heaven by God and forgotten on this earth. Verse 16 and 17 give us some proverbial sayings in 18. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Clearly, clearly a, a summary statement here. Wisdom is better than the strength. He, he overcame the king. The poor man's wisdom, it was despised. He was forgotten, but, but he's rewarded. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Uh, this reminds me, us, I hopefully, of how foolishness is so easy to find. 
Now, wisdom is a rare jewel to pursue and know and, and, and hold fast to. As we conclude, death is inevitable. We all die. But we do not have to fear the sting of death, the judgment of God. Jesus has died to defeat death and take away that sting. Death is coming. How will you live in light of it? Will you receive the instruction of our preacher in the end of the matter? Fear the Lord. Keep his commandments, knowing that there is a judgment for how we live in this short, vain life. In light of Jesus and his resurrection and his promised return, do we long for heaven? Are we seeking to be stewards of all God has given us? Are we seeking to put off sin while we long for heaven when sin will be fully removed? Enjoy the fruit of your labor God gives you, knowing that one day you will be invited to sit at the table of the king, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and rejoice with him forever. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have created us good. You created us with a, a glory to, to, to reflect you, the glorious God, in the way we, we speak and behave and treat each other, the way we worship you. Lord, even though we denied you, we worshiped everything else under the sun. You sent your son to forgive us, restore us, Renew us. Give us hope. Not just hope that we're not dead yet, but hope that we will have eternal life. Father, I pray we would know how to walk in wisdom, redeeming these days, longing for the eternal day. Pray, pray that we would have wisdom in knowing how to live this life you've given to us and that Christ has purchased with his own blood. Because you've loved us. Because you're in love, endures, and your love keeps us. Help us to hope in a hope that transforms us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.